welcome back, accordion aficionados, to This Is Comp, a series of Discord and Rhyme minisodes where we talk about compilations, artist by artist, song by song, oompa by oompa. I'm Rich Bennell. I'm Amanda Rogers. And I'm Dan Watkins. So today we are finishing up our series on Weird Al Yankovic's first polka medley, Polkas on 45, from the 1984 album In 3D. But first, I want to hear both of your own histories with Weird Al's work, if there's any to speak of. Uh, Amanda, where has your life intersected with the man? You know, what's kind of funny is I'm not nearly as much of a Weird Al fan as some of you guys are, but I think I've known about him longer. Because one of my cousins was really into comedy music, and we used to spend a lot of time listening to Weird Al and Haywood Banks. And I know she had in 3D and even worse. And then when we were about 12 was when Alapalooza came out, and we listened to that one obsessively. And you guys have told me that that one falls fairly low in the Weird Al rankings, but it's the one that I know the best. It has its moments. It has Frank's 2000-inch TV on it. Yeah, yes, and one. I still sing Living in the Fridge every time I clean out the refrigerator, and I will stand Harvey the Wonder Hamster forever. So these days, I, I hardly ever feel like listening to Weird Al on purpose, but he always makes me smile whenever I happen to come across him in any context. And I have a huge amount of respect for him, both as an artist and as a person. He's a real class act. Yeah, it's true. He's the nicest guy. And I, I actually agree with you that as much as I bring up Weird Al, I almost never put on his albums, uh, mm -hmm. like just start, start to finish. He's more of a reference point for me. Yeah. I listened to Even Worse all the way through the other night for the first time in many, many years. And just loved it. It's so good. It does have stuck in a closet with Vanna White on yeah. it. <laughs> but it doesn't have a polka medley, actually. That's one of his polka-less albums. It doesn't, but it does have the James Taylor-style song about the psychopath who tortures animals in the basement. <laughs> good old days. <laughs> it was really funny. Oh, and mom would be fixing up something in the kitchen. Fresh biscuits or hot apple pie. And I'd spend all day long in the basement Torturing rats with a hacksaw And pulling the wings off of flies Those were the good old days Those were the good old days The years go by but the memory stays And those were the good old days So Dan, how about you? What's your history with his weirdness? Not the weirdness, the reportedly terrible album by the Stooges. <laughs> I've not heard. Uh, I'm pretty sure the first time I was aware of him was the uh, Smells Like Nirvana video. And that was my primary exposure to Weird Al was just MTV. Uh, I you know, always liked him. The only Weird Al album I bought to this day is the podcast favorite Bad Hair Day. Which I guess because we're all the same age. So we just had disposable income at the same time <clears throat> but uh, yeah well as i mentioned we're all part of the bad hair day cohort except amanda is apparently part of the alapalooza cohort yeah. and that's the album that came right before yeah i'm just a couple years older yeah borrow that one from a friend so actually that was the first one i actually heard in its entirety but i'm kind of like amanda like i've always enjoyed him in passing but i've I, I never felt the need to really listen to his albums all that much. And, you know i i love uhf i've seen uhf a hundred times but you know, I, I, I like him a lot. I saw I've seen him in concert twice. Uh, wow. He was great both times. Uh, and to, for the longest time, yeah, I saw him in, I guess, is on the Running with the Scissors tour. 
And that was my favorite concert for a long time. Because it was really, really, really fun. I believe that. I was in like the third row center for that tour. That was at the peak of my Weird Al fandom. Wow. I've seen him four times, actually. I saw him once before that on the Bad Hair tour, like just playing at a county fair. It was a really short show. And then I saw him more recently on the, the Mandatory Fun tour in 2015. That's what I then, saw, too. Yeah. Yeah. And then he did his stripped down vanity tour that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. And that was a few years ago, right around when this podcast started. But yeah, four times. I'd gladly see him again, you know, if I ever if I'm ever you know not frightened to go to concerts anymore. <laughs> so anyway, this is going to be an interesting episode because Polka's on 45, as we said last time, is a is in large part a roundup of major FM radio acts from the late 60s and early 70s. And we've actually already done full Discord and Rhyme episodes on four of the seven bands in this episode. So to save time and labor, we're going to focus mostly on the songs. And if you want to know an exhaustive history of these artists, check out their corresponding episodes and I'll link to them in the show description. They're all really fun. But we're going to start with a major classic rock act that we actually haven't gotten around to yet. And that's the Jimi Hendrix experience with Hey Joe. Hey Joe, where are you going with that gun in your hand? Hey Joe. James Marshall Hendricks was born in Seattle, Washington on November 27, 1942. After a short stint in the U.S. Army, he began playing on the Chitlin circuit, finding spots as a guitarist and backing bands for the Isley Brothers and later Little Richard. He eventually found management with former Animals bassist Chaz Chandler and moved to England in 1966, where he formed the Jimi Hendrix Experience with other Brits, Noel Redding on bass and Mitch Mitchell on drums. By the mid-60s, Hey Joe is becoming something of a standard. Authorship of the song has been contested, but it was eventually registered for copyright by Billy Roberts in 1962. The first known commercial release of the song was the rowdy version recorded by The Leaves in 1965, which we covered in our Nugget series. It was then followed by a more rickety take from the birds the following year. And a version by Love the same year essentially followed the same template. It became enough of a cultural phenomenon to be lampooned hippie noise and all by the modes of invention of the song Flower Punk. Where you going with that flower in your hand? Hey, Pop, where you going with that flower in your hand? 
However, Hendrix favored a different approach to the song completely. He drew his inspiration from folk singer Tim Rose's slower, more mournful arrangement. Hey, Joe, where you going with that? Oh, that gun in your hand. Hey, Joe, where you going with that gun in your hand? The recording was the experience's first single released in the UK in December 1966 making it number 62 on the UK charts. It was eventually released as a single in the US on May 1st, 1967, but did not chart. In fact, the band didn't really break in the US until their show-stealing performance at Monterey Pop Festival the following summer. Hendrix is one of the first classic rock guys I really got into as a kid. And he's an easy guy to get really excited about when you're eight years Mm -hmm. old and discovering classic rock. What I find interesting is knowing what Hendrix was famous for, that he opted for this approach to the song. And it has since become the definitive version of the song. Because I remember hearing the Lee's version for the first time and being just blown away by it and going like, oh, my God, like this, this rocks. <laughs> what it used to Hey Joe sounding like. But I've kind of looped back around to appreciating the Hendrix version, too. Like it, it kind of became a little staid because... You know, my interest in Hendrix has kind of waxed and waned over the years because it's such a small amount of music that's been just ubiquitous forever. Um, so it's easy to kind of take it for granted and forget what made it special to begin with. But I I like Hey Joe. There's a groundbreaking opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually haven't spent much time with Jimi Hendrix. I like him. I like him a lot. And I own a reissue of the LP of Electric Ladyland. And plus, you know, I've heard his hits all over the radio. But, you know, honestly, I would say that if I were to rank the songs in order of the number of times I've heard them in my life, it would go number one, Purple Haze, and number two, Crucial Taunts cover of Fire from Wayne's World, <laughs> sung by Tia Carrere. <laughs> Taunt. <laughs> but my father-in-law actually lived in New York in the late 60s. And uh, so he apparently got to see Jimi Hendrix like on either his first American show or like one of his first, which and nobody in the crowd apparently like, you know, knew what they were getting into and they were just blown away. So that was that must have been like quite a moment in time. Wow. But Amanda, what do you think of this song and Jimi Hendrix? I like it. I don't know Hendrix very well beyond the songs that everyone knows. And this was one of those songs that I just I've heard it on the radio. It's stuck in my head because it's good. And it's it's very slow and stretched out. It doesn't really do a whole lot, but it's still interesting. It has some, you know, some cool textures in it that catch in your head. And what I like about this arrangement, as opposed to, say, the leaves one, is this is much closer to the form of like an old Appalachian murder ballad. Yeah, And there's a long tradition of songs about murdering your no good cheating woman and also a lot of songs about murdering your no good cheating man. So, I I mean, I guess the lesson here is don't cheat if you don't want to get murdered, which is kind of a terrible (laughs) lesson. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, this I think this arrangement is excellent. I think I like that it's become the definitive one. Um, I hadn't heard the birds one in a long time. I just listened to it the other day and was just shocked at how bad it is. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Man alive. And the rest of that album is so good. And that one's on Fifth Dimension, right? I think that's yeah. right, yeah. Yeah. yeah great album. And 5D is probably my favorite bird song. And it's got Hey Joe sitting right next to it. But what, what are you going to do? Uh, I do think 
as as far as like contrast between the original goes, this is one of the best polka ones in the medley <laughs> because it just that really really goofy singing style of his and the just the accordion arrangement contrasted with the extreme darkness of the lyrics and then that cartoony sound effect right before he starts yodeling it's hilarious <laughs> mm-hmm. that all works so well yeah and i want to talk a little more about the covers of this song because like dan said there are a lot of them and like so the early versions of it before the Jimi hendrix one they mostly sound like the leaves version really tense and nervy and it, in fact it feels like it was kind of a rite of passage to cover this song to make it onto the nuggets box set because uh, like dan said there are versions there's a version by love but there's all there are also versions by the music machine the crying shames the standells and our old friends the shadows of night oh yeah no. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's not really a high standard of professionalism to get onto the Nuggets set, but the Shadows of Night always managed to be well below it. It's amazing yeah. to hear that song with no edges whatsoever to it. Yeah. <laughs> Just completely straight. Wow. But anyway, once Jimi Hendrix covered the song, that basically became the template for every version that came afterwards. And so here's a version by Cher that illustrates that. And she doesn't stray too far from his arrangement. Hey, Joe, where you going with that gun in your hand? I said now, hey, Joe. Yeah, all I have to say about that one is I love Moonstruck. Yeah, I like Cher, but I honestly couldn't tell. Was that good or I think it was bad? It was kind of just somewhere in the middle. It yeah. probably sounds fun on a variety show in the 70s. Yeah, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah, but there are also some interesting deviations on the forum. So here's Wilson Pickett, who adds a fat Stax horn section. Hey, Joe. I like this. Yeah. yeah, there's some really awesome wailing on this one. And moving forward several decades. So here's a version from 2013 by Charlotte Gainsbourg. And her oh. version is pretty out there. I can barely listen to this version because her vocals are so ASMR. Yeah, I don't like it either. Yeah, no, I'm cringing too. I mean, <laughs> I'm having a physical reaction to this. It's very unpleasant. <laughs> well, you're like actually hearing her tongue move in her mouth like that. But I, I guess if people don't know, Charlotte Gainsbourg is Serge Gainsbourg's daughter. And she also like she's an actress. She appeared in the movie Nymphomaniac and uh, she was really channeling her dad there. <laughs> anyway, and I have one more. So I'm going to let you both guess who this last one is. Nazareth. <laughs> nope. Is it Red Hot Chili Peppers? Oh, is it Def Leppard? Nope. <clears throat> Any final guesses? Guns N' Roses? That was Eddie Murphy. Oh his God. third and to date final pop music album, Love's All Right from 1993. I didn't know he had a post party all the time music 
career. Yeah, he had three albums of pop music. Wow. And also this cover is eight minutes long. Wow. Yep. Today I learned. Yeah, he just, he really felt that he could do anything at that point, but nope. But that's 1993, Eddie Murphy. That's like Beverly Hills Cop 3 era. Ooh, that's that's near the... The downslide. And just one more thing. So the only Weird Al related note I have is in regards to that yodeling at the end that Amanda mentioned. So uh, as I said in the last episode, this medley went through some early embryonic forms. And Hey Joe used to lead into a version of Prince's 1999. he's so bad at yodeling but that's not gonna stop him (laughs) well so it's pretty common knowledge among weird al fans that he repeatedly asked prince for permission to parody or cover his songs and he was turned down every time Mm -hmm. because you know prince was a remarkably talented musician but he didn't have much of a sense of humor and this was probably one of those cases and he didn't allow covers period so i I don't think there was ever a chance he would have said yes to that. Yeah, he was he was consistent at least. But uh, I like that Weird Al turned into the skid and took the tonight we're going to yodel gag and turned it into a play on the old lady line from Hey Joe, like old lady, old lady who. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was some quick thinking on his part. Okay, well, uh, we could we could just keep playing covers of Hey Joe all day if we wanted to. But let's uh, let's go on to the second song. So this is Talking Heads with Burning Down the House. So Talking Heads are the first band in this set that we've covered before because Dan hosted an episode back in 2020 on their excellent 1979 album, Fear of Music. Burning Down the House is from a few years later, showing up as the opening track on their 1983 album, Speaking in Tongues. And it was the band's biggest hit in the U.S., hitting number nine on the Hot 100. But curiously enough, it didn't chart at all in the U.K. Or to be more accurate, it didn't chart in the U.K. until it was covered by Tom Jones and the Cardigans in 1999. Boy, that's a pairing. <laughs> Have I gone crazy or is this really fun? I put this on a mix CD once. Really? Yeah.
Yeah, that comes from Tom Jones's album Reload, where he basically used like a random name and song generator to choose artists to collaborate with <laughs> on songs to cover. Wait, is that serious? Uh, and, uh, are you serious about that? No, he didn't. Okay. No, not not really. It's just if you look at the track listing, that's what it feels like. There's a cover of Never Tear Us Apart by NXS uh, that he did with Natalie Imbruglia. What? I guess there's like an Australian theme there, but yeah. <laughs> look it up. It's uh, I haven't listened to the whole album, but it must be at least a little bit entertaining. That sounds really interesting. So the title Burning Down the House comes from Parliament Funkadelic, another band we featured on the show. We did a double header on the album's Maggot Brain and Mothership Connection back in early 2019. So Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth went to a P-Funk show at Madison Square Garden, and the crowd started chanting, burn down the house, burn down the house, before the song The Roof is on Fire. In honor of this lineage, P-Funk keyboardist Bernie Worrell became a member of the touring Talking Heads band, including in the concert film Stop Making Sense, which features a show-stopping rendition of this song. Yeah. So I love both the Speaking in Tongues and Stop Making Sense versions of Burning Down the House. And as I mentioned in our Fear of Music episode, Weird Al got me into Talking Heads. Like, I'm imagining a young Al Yankovic coming across this music and thinking, this is the perfect band. Music can go no higher. Like this and Devo are the things that I imagine like being the primordial Weird Al music. <laughs> yeah. And his, cat- and his catalog is just littered with Talking Heads references. So at his early concerts, he would perform a food medley per- featuring a parody of the Talking Heads version of Al Green's Take Me to the River titled Take Me to the Liver. <laughs> Don't know why you feed me so bad. Think of all the health food I could have had. You took my yogurt and my holy friend. You give me ding dongs and twinkies instead. I wanna know, can you tell me when is it going to end? Oh, take me to the liver. Push it on the platter. So delightfully stupid. And I I didn't include this part of the clip, but uh, Weird Al introduced that by saying that he was going to play some more songs about buildings and food. So perfect (laughs) right there. (laughs) <laughs> and his 1986 album Polka Party features a full-on stylistic parody of Talking Heads titled Dog Eat Dog. Sometimes I can't believe this is all really happening. Sometimes I can't believe that I'm really sitting here. Sometimes I tell myself this is not my beautiful stapler. Sometimes I tell myself this is not my beautiful chair. So I've mentioned many times that I've learned about a lot of my favorite music by way of Weird Al. And in particular, listening to him is like being presented with a big neon sign saying, listen to Talking Heads, you stupid nerd. What are you waiting for? Do it right now. And I did. And I love them. But what do you guys think of uh, Burning Down the House? What about you, Amanda? It's a good song. <laughs> All right, Dan. No, no. I, I like Burning Down the House a lot. It's I'm not sure. What I have specific to say about it, it's just so rhythmic and catchy and fun to listen to. Um, And I know another cover of it that I like a lot. Bonnie Raitt did it on her live album, Road Tested. And 
I sent that, that to our co-host Will, and he was offended by it. <laughs> I really like it. it. Like a couple other people I know who are big Talking Heads fans can't stand it at all. But I'm not a particularly big Talking Heads fan. I just I enjoy them, but I'm not obsessive about them. And I think Bonnie Raitt's cover is fine. I had a Billboard Music Guide CD-ROM in, in the 90s that like had a bunch of like video clips and audio clips of various artists. And the one for Bonnie Raitt, the video for her was her performing that cover. Mm. I, I'd forgotten about that. I completely memory-hold it. <laughs> that whole that live album is really good. I, I recommend it highly. Um, and going back a little bit, speaking of Weird Al and Devo, uh, that is primordial Weird Al music. He's on record saying that. There's a podcast called This Particular Album is Very, Very Important to Me. Uh, one of the co-hosts is Joel Spence, who's also on Screw It. We're just going to talk about the Beatles and the hosts. They they bring somebody on to talk about an album that's very, very important to them. And one of the guests was Weird Al, and he talked oh, about right. uh, Devo's album Freedom of Choice. Am I getting yeah, that right? Yeah, Freedom of Choice. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting to listen to. Yeah, that was a really fun episode. I, I forgot about it, and that's a, that, that podcast is worth listening to in general. Mm -hmm. I, I I hope they come back at some point. They've done three seasons, and they're all very entertaining. Mm -hmm. uh, Dan, what do you think? I mean, you know, I, I guess I did my history in the free music episode, but Talking Heads have been in my life forever, and specifically Stop Making Sense was just a childhood staple. And what's interesting is that was my main exposure to the band first. So then getting speaking in tongues and hearing the songs in their studio versions was kind of strange because a lot of the songs are radically different. It's not making sense. Mm -hmm. And I, this is a song where I do actually prefer the original album version because I think there's a lot of interesting little production details in this uh, that kind of get lost in the live version. Like I like those kind of ghostly little synth lines during the, the outro and I, I like the way yeah. the the different product mm -hmm. the different percussion like pops really big you know like the the tune production like i kind of imagine was it steve scales in the stomaching sense movie who does all of the like little different size drums and stuff for those little runs uh well the song itself is great it's it's not a song it's such a like popular song of theirs that as a fan of the band i don't think about a lot but whenever it's on, I remember, oh, this is a really fun song. I kind of forget mm -hmm. that sometimes because it's just mm -hmm. it's so popular. But yeah, of course, it means it's great. Yeah. Popularity and quality always go hand in hand. Yeah, <laughs> always. Yeah. The Stop Making Sense versions of the songs from Speaking in Tongues, like they're generally like smoother and slicker and more energetic than the ones on the album. And uh, I mean, they're entertaining, but I think they lose a little bit without actually like watching the visual element of the movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You got to see them running in place. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and I will say that, like, you know, if you haven't seen Stop Making Sense, it, like, go out and watch it right now. Like, I actually put it on a tier above my favorite movies, and I consider it just one of my favorite experiences, period. Yeah. It's so good. I just watched it for the first time a few years ago, and I, I don't know Talking Heads super well, and the majority of the songs in the movie were ones I wasn't familiar with, but I loved every bit of it anyway. It's just so fun to watch. So, yeah, whether you're a Talking Heads fan or not, give that movie a try. You're going to like it. Yeah, I've actually seen a theatrical screening of it a couple of times, and it's oh. the only, like, concert oh, film fun. in that where, where people actually, like, cheered at the end of each song. And, uh, <laughs> like, walking out of the theater, there were some people who got annoyed by that, but I was like, oh, too bad, so sad. No, that sounds really fun. Yeah. I saw the original Kings of Comedy in the theater, and they were having a good time when I saw it. <laughs> Speaking of still making sense, though, like, that was actually a movie that – you know, I watched it as a kid, liked it. And then I got into the band like hardcore, like in the mid nineties. 
and I want to see the movie again, but the movie was out of print for years. Like it's hard to find mm. on VHS. So we actually called the video store that we ran the movie from all those years ago and bought it from them for $5. And so oh, wow. I'm almost certain we watched that tape more than anybody <laughs> who ever rented it. So wow. Mm-hmm. And now it's, it's on, on Amazon, Amazon Prime now yeah. for anybody who wants to see it. <laughs> yeah. They, if we're talking about like movies, I've seen more times than any other movie. It's that and just, you know, various Star Trek even numbered movies like Wrath of Khan. <laughs> so those are the ones. Okay, well, let's uh, let's go on to the next track. So this medley contains a lot of classic rock in it. And now it's time for some quote unquote classic rock. This is Foreigner with Hot Blooded. I'm hot blooded, chicken and sea. Got a fever of 103. Come on, baby, do you do more than dance? I'm hot blooded, hot blooded. <laughs> I think this has been my favorite transition so far. Yeah. improves the song recently tyler mahan co of the cocaine and rhinestones podcast tweeted about foreigner and i'm just going to read it here because it was a good tweet he said foreigner is better than 95 percent of bands you can throw on that this is foreigner spotify playlist in nearly any bar with beers on tap and it'll be like 15 bangers deep before anybody thinks to ask wait why are we listening to so much foreigner right now <laughs> now there's a lot to unpack there <laughs> <laughs> First of all, it really depends on your dish definition of good, because <laughs> <laughs> if you're defining that by able to churn out generic bangers one after the other, then yes, foreigners amazing. But by any other measure I can think of, they suck. Yeah, Tyler Mahenko, your favorite band sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't mean to put down the ability to churn out bangers because that is not easy to do. But good Lord, does Foreigner play to the lowest common denominator? I'm I'm not sure I have ever heard an original or interesting idea in a Foreigner song. They have a few that I like, okay, but I actually did turn on the This Is Foreigner playlist to test this theory, <laughs> and I only got about four songs in before I couldn't stand it anymore. And to be fair, I was driving my kid to school and not hanging out in a bar, which probably made a difference. But if I were in a bar... I would be asking why we're listening to so much Foreigner with great annoyance. Whereas you could probably do the same thing with Bad Company. I'd be like, why are we listening to so much Bad Company? Who's doing this? Do you think they'd be my friend? So, yeah, not not really into Foreigner. Now, here is the really weird thing about this band, though. One of the founding members is Ian McDonald. Wait, that Ian McDonald? The King Crimson one? Ian McDonald. Ian McDonald, the one who just died, founding member of King Crimson, architect of In the Court of the Crimson King, the guy who played the Mellotron in Epitaph, one of the finest instrumental performances of any kind ever recorded, formed Foreigner. (laughs) 
Lo, how the mighty have fallen. I, I saw his <laughs> name while looking up information about Foreigner for this episode, but I was like, surely it can't be the same Ian McDonald. It's the same Ian McDonald. <laughs> and don't call me Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and as I said, he just died recently, and I don't remember any of the tweets about it saying anything about Foreigner, which is probably significant. So, yeah, <laughs> if I hadn't made this clear, I don't like Hot-Blooded. I think Weird Al improved on it. Oh, absolutely. And I really like that section of the polka melody where he just really drastically shifts gears, and that makes it even funnier. There's usually a cool-down section in his medleys, and this is where he put it in this one. He established the tradition here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I tried to be rigorous and academic and listen to the full album Double Vision for this episode, uh, which Ooh. contains Hot-Blooded. But after Hot-Blooded followed by three Foreigner album tracks, not singles, album tracks, I just couldn't take it anymore. I had to turn <laughs> it off. And for the record, I listened to the entire Peebo Bryson and Roberta Flack duets album for our Now That's What I Call Music <laughs> series. Oh, so geez. I have a pretty high tolerance for enduring cornball shit for this podcast. But <laughs> apparently there's a limit and that limit happens to be Foreigner. There's, they're just this lethal combination of like generic and gross like uh, uh dan was showing us the cover for the for their album head games which is a woman like wiping her phone number off the stall in a bathroom while leaning against a urinal yeah. it's just uh yeah yeah in our slack we were talking about if you how if you listen to classic rock radio in the 90s the only bands that apparently existed in the mid to late 70s were foreigner the aforementioned bad company boston and 38 special Mm -hmm. And of those, I will take 38 Special, I think. I think so, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, the beginning of Four Play Long Time uh, by Boston. I think that that also makes the list. But yeah, part of the reason I chose Earth, Wind & Fire for our first episode was to counter the narrative that the 70s were a barren wasteland for music that, you know, classic rock radio tends mm -hmm. to favor. But uh, Dan, what say you about Hot-Blooded? Oh, come on, guys. Um, <laughs> you know, speaking to the Ian McDonald thing, I did check songwriting credits and I think it's telling that he has no songwriting credits on any of their big hits. So oh. that's why there's perhaps zero traces of King Crimson DNA and Foreigner. There's no Moonchild jam on, on Double Vision. No, but I wouldn't mind hearing Lou Graham barking out a talk to the wind, though. Could be really good. <laughs> yeah, the only distinguishing feature of Foreigner is just how middle of the road they are. Like it's, mm -hmm. I don't even dislike this song necessarily. It's just, there's nothing about it that like, it's just, it's, it's literally wallpaper music. Like it's just, there's just yeah. nothing distinct about it. I mean, people make fun of like Steve Miller band, but at least I, I you know the songs have, you know, there's something to them. You might not like them, but at least they have distinct melodies and stuff. This is yeah. just like, a, an absence of of flavor <laughs> it's just nothing oh yeah add steve miller band yeah. to that list of bands i mentioned earlier yeah. i do really like swing town i think that's a great song i like some steve miller songs yeah, i like that one about the big old jet airliner mm -hmm. yeah that's a good one i mean i don't i hate the joker but otherwise yeah I, that's... I take the money and run i could stand and never hear again but mm -hmm. there are definitely steve miller songs i like oh abracadabra can go to hell too oh i hate that song also the the, the song facts entry for this song has some pretty amazing literal lyric interpretation <laughs> so i'm going to quote it the phrase hot-blooded means passionate and fiery, and here it's used by the singer to indicate a raging libido. <laughs> he claims that his blood is literally hot, reaching a fever temperature of 103 degrees. While most men afflicted with this condition would require a fair amount of rest, he feels that an after-show rendezvous with the girl he's been checking out is just what he needs. End quote. <laughs> I mean, the man's ill with the flu. He's kissing ladies? That's just irresponsible. <laughs> irresponsible. <laughs> And before we move on, I have a transitional clip to play. So after Hot-Blooded Weird Al and his band perform a brief bit of linking music that I'd always assumed was original. 
Well, in fact, that is actually Bob Calame's Bubbles in the Wine, which is the theme to the Lawrence Welk show. (laughs) (laughs) That is adorable. Yeah, I didn't recognize it because I'm not 900 years old, but it makes for a pretty (laughs) hilarious juxtaposition with the Foreigner song. Okay, well, let's. uh, Here's another one of the most famous songs of all time, and a a song that we've discussed on this show very recently. This is The Police with Every Breath You Take. Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. So we literally just covered the police on our podcast this past December in our holiday episode on the album Synchronicity. So if you want to learn about every breath you take in great detail, I encourage you to listen to that episode because it was a really fun discussion. And to recap, it is by some metrics the biggest radio hit of all time. And it's both a love song and a song from the perspective of of an obsessive stalker in a way that makes you rethink both the entire concept of love songs and the entire concept of love. But Dan and Amanda, neither of you were on the Synchronicity episode, so I'm curious what you both think of this song and The Police. Uh, Well, when I was a kid, I had a hard time distinguishing Sting and The Police as separate entities. I had a similar thing Mm. with Phil Collins and Genesis, where I just thought, oh, that's Sting. And I didn't like Sting as a kid. And so for the longest time, I didn't like The Police. It's been like a later in life thing, warming up to The Police. Um... And this song was so popular that I never really gave it a whole lot of thought. And then, of course, the Puff Daddy thing happened and it became even more like of a a thing. But honestly, yeah, I, I, it's grown on me. And I was actually just listening to the Synchronicity episode this week. And Rich's discussion really made me appreciate it a lot more than I have in the past. Yeah, uh, it really did. Um and I think especially the part that sticks out to me more is, I don't know if it's the chorus or a bridge where it takes that little lift. That part really jumps out of me more now than it has in the past. But, you know, police is still kind of a I have trouble with Sting sometimes. I don't know. He He's a, a quite a presence. And sometimes well, he so, mm-hmm. so did the other two members of the police. So, yeah, <laughs> but uh, but I, I do like every breath you take. It, it just took me a while to get there. Amanda, how about you? I honestly don't know if I like every breath you take anymore. I've heard it so many times. I, I've reached a point of saturation where I'm no longer capable of having an opinion. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember if I ever, if I started out liking it and then got tired of it, or if I ever liked it to begin with. 
to be honest, I'm not sure if I ever did. And constant exposure didn't really make it grow on me. Like, I'm not mad at it or anything, but a lot of times when I'm listening to Synchronicity, I skip it. In that episode, you guys did a great job of pointing out all the reasons why it really is an exceptionally well-composed song. Um, it, It's not a bad song at all. It's kind of incredible, actually. I'm just... I don't know. I can't deal with it anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm I'm kind of with you. I mean, as much as I like appreciated digging into the song for the synchronicity episode, I, I still think of it as more of an academic subject than a song that I'd actually enjoy sitting down and listening to. Uh, whereas yeah. like to go into the other synchronicity hits, I still like actively love listening to King of Pain, Synchronicity 2 and Wrapped Around Your Finger. Like I, I could listen to those for days. Yeah. And I don't hear this as much, too. So they're a little fresher. They're just not quite as beaten to the ground. I do also think, though, that this is another exceptionally good part of the polka medley, especially when he says, I'll be watching you, because I feel like he (laughs) winks and does finger guns on that line. (laughs) So in regard to Weird Al, uh, so I already talked about Weird Al's other spoofs of the police in the Synchronicity episode because both Phil and I were on that one. So Weird Al was bound to come up and he did a King of Pain parody called King of Suede and the style parody of the police Velvet Elvis. And we put clips of that in the episode. So go back and listen to it. It's great. Uh, But I actually have a somewhat embarrassing Weird Al inspired personal history with this song. So. When I first discovered the World Wide Web, I had a friend from New Jersey on IRC, and we would talk primarily about Mega Man and Weird Al for hours on end. I know you guys are probably so surprised about that. Nerds. Uh, (laughs) And we had a website (laughs) where we would write our own incredibly amateurish song parodies with the level of refinement and cultural wisdom that you would expect from a couple of junior high school students. And um, I don't remember the URL, and I'm never planning to make sure it public you don't. knowledge. Hmm? Sure, you don't remember that. Really. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> See, sure, surely this exists in the internet archives. It definitely does. The Wayback never, Machine. I'm it's ne- on there somewhere. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say I, I'm never planning to make it public knowledge because people would be able to look it up on the Wayback Machine. Uh, but the parodies <laughs> included Jay, which was a parody of Michael Jackson's Jam about Jay Sherman from The Critic, and uh, <laughs> uh, 3D Games Bite a parody of NXS's Need You Tonight about how angry I was that my Super Nintendo was becoming obsolete. (laughs) And to cycle back to the police, I wrote a double parody of Every Breath You Take and Don't Stand So Close to Me called The Smoking Song with lyrics changed to Every Puff You Take and Don't Smoke So Close to Me. (laughs) I was very displeased by the smokers in my life when I was 13 years old. And now all of our listeners know the single most embarrassing secret from my childhood. I have poured my whole soul into this podcast. Yeah. I have so much respect for you right now. <laughs> <laughs> and now and now some of our listeners are going to somehow like figure out the URL and I'm uh, my life is going to get ruined. But, you know, I, I've made my bed. The most brutal form of doxing. Damn. Yeah. Oh, geez. <laughs> okay, well. That is amazing, Rich. I'm so glad you shared. <laughs> All right, well, now it's time for our second band of the episode with a member named Mick Jones. It is time for some big audio dynamite. Somehow stay thin What other guys got fat No, this is actually The Clash with Should I Stay or Should I Go? Darling, you gotta let me Should I stay or should I go? 
darling, you got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? If you say that you are mine, I'll be here till the end of time. So you got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? It's always tease, tease, tease. You're happy when I'm on my knees. One day is fine, the next is black. So if you want me off your back, well come on and let me know. Should I stay or should I go? So that was the only band that matters, by which I, of course, mean Weird Al's band, who I just realized I haven't actually talked about. <laughs> so Weird Al has an exceptionally versatile backing band because they have to be, given the wide range of styles his parodies cover, and the fact that they have to sound as close to the originals as possible. And the N3D album was the first to feature his full band, including guitarist Jim West, bassist Steve Jay, and drummer and percussionist John Bermuda Schwartz, who actually he met during the recording of the song Another One Rides the Bus on Dr. Nemento when... Schwartz drummed on his accordion case like he was literally the drummer from right from the start anyway they're still his backing band to this day because working with Weird Al is basically the best gig in all of music and the only lineup change is that they added keyboardist Rubin Beltiera in 1992 and to cycle back to should I stay or should I go I have actually heard Al and his band play this song live so yeah yeah in 2018 Weird Al embarked on the ridiculously self-indulgent ill-advised vanity tour which featured stripped down performances of only his original songs and every encore on this tour was a straight ahead cover of a classic song performed as faithfully as possible and at my show in Ann Arbor the cover was should I stay or should I go Sounds mad. <laughs> yeah, he's really growling it out. He's, he sounds <laughs> yeah. more like Joe Strummer than Mick Jones here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and at the show that Phil Maddox, our co-host, went to, uh, apparently the cover was Refugee by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, which must have been so much fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So now on to a band that matters slightly less. So The Clash are one of the most important groups in music history. Their classic lineup consisted of Joe Strummer on rhythm guitar and vocals, Mick Jones on lead guitar and vocals, and that's him singing on this song. Uh, with with Joe Strummer doing the backing vocals, uh, Paul Simonon on bass and occasional lead vocals, and Nikki Topper Heaton on drums and percussion. Their self titled 1977 debut was a genre defining punk rock record that everyone should hear at least once. quickly widened their sonic palette on the double album London Calling and the monstrous, unwieldy triple album Sandinista with an exclamation point, which are just two of the most colorful records you'll hear with excursions into funk, ska, reggae, dub, rockabilly, and some songs that are just uncategorizable. (laughs) 
So Should I Say or Should I Go comes from 1982's Combat Rock, which was the final album released under their classic lineup. And it's one of the more straightforward songs on the album, but it's still kind of weird because of Joe Strummer's decision to sing the response vocals in Spanish with singer Joe Eli starting in the second verse. And I actually didn't realize that's what was going on here until I looked that up. Oh, I didn't either. Yeah, I don't think I knew that either. Decisions bugging me. If you don't want me, set me free. Exactly who I'm supposed to be. Don't you know which clothes even fit me? Come on. So Amanda, what do you think of this one? I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've never liked this song, and to be honest, never been I, a big fan either. I don't really like the Clash in general. Uh, I love the song "London Calling." I think "Train in Vain" is okay, but for the most part, they just kind of get on my nerves. Um, and I find this song especially annoying because it just—I mean, I believe you that it's, you know, smart and well done and whatever. But I, it just—it does one thing the whole time, maybe one and a half things. And I find that one thing kind of dull and obnoxious. Yeah, as far as like singles from combat rock go, I've always been a much bigger fan of Rock the Casbah. Yes. Oh, I don't like Rock the Casbah either. (laughs) That one also gets on my nerves. Well, Sharif don't like it either. I will say if I were at a Weird Al concert and he decided to cover the song, I would be really thrilled to hear it, though, (laughs) because that sounded really, really fun. And. It's it's not often that you get to hear Weird Al play something straight. Mm-hmm. And he's he's really good at it. If you go on YouTube, you can find him doing a, a cover of George Harrison's song, What is Life? And he's acting like a total goof the whole time. He's really funny to watch, but just it's a really good cover. He plays yeah, it perfectly so straight and it's wonderful. Yeah, well, the whole Vanity Tour was really fun because like, I, I mean, usually Weird Al shows are like this, you know, big production with a bunch of costume changes and videos and stuff. But this was like literally just the band like sitting in a circle performing as a band. And one other thing they did during the encore was they did like kind of a parody of acoustic unplugged shows where they turned like <laughs> that where they did a whole medley of just uh of some of his biggest parody hits, like uh, Unplugged style. And the funniest one was that he did eat it in the style of the unplugged version of Layla by Eric Clapton. (laughs) (laughs) How come you're always such a fussy young man? Don't want no Captain Crunch, don't want no Raisin Bran. Well, don't you know that other kids are starving in Japan? So eat it, just eat it. So, Dan, what say you about The Clash? Uh, you know, they're a band that I always feel like I should love a lot more than I do as a self-respecting music fan. I like them, but I don't know. To me, as far as like punk bands, and I know they go beyond punk, but I just have found their other bands I find far more interesting. This song, like you guys, I've never been crazy about. Uh like you said, Rich, there are other songs on Combat Rock I like better. This is just, it just plods. Like, it's just, uh, just nonstop. <laughs> and <laughs> the chorus is supposed to be this big, like, release, but it doesn't, like, it doesn't earn it. Like, it doesn't, like, it to me, it's not, it doesn't, it's not effective. It's just a slog. Like, it just keeps going. And it's like, and this song, like, five minutes long. It's, it's not Something a like that, yeah. tight composition. It's just, it's mm-hmm. just so, like, monotonous uh i'll take any song off of london calling over this but it's it, i'm shocked how 
much this song has become like the song you hear everywhere though by the clash it's in commercials it's it's mm-hmm. everywhere and i don't like it i think this Never one have. actually became more popular when it started getting used in the commercial in commercials in the 90s so probably we, so we have advertising mm-hmm. to thank for that that's three negatives on the clash <laughs> yeah well i like the clash i mean honestly yeah. i was kind of holding back my opinion of this song because i love the clash in general i mean they're not one of my favorite bands but i like i like london calling a lot but yeah like i i honestly have never really cared for this one mm-hmm. okay well if we're done with the clash it's time for the flash comma jumping jack this is the rolling <laughs> stones with the penultimate track in the medley <laughs> i know perfect segue right slick but it's all We covered the Rolling Stones in June last year when Phil, when our co-host Phil Maddox hosted an episode on their strange, drugged-out, one-of-a-kind psychedelic 1967 album, Their Satanic Majesty's Request. And part of our whole thesis in that episode was that there's much more to the Stones than you get just listening to their hits on the radio. And Jumpin' Jack Flash is about as radio Stones as you can get. So the band had flirted with Baroque pop and psychedelia on their albums Aftermath, Between the Buttons, the compilation Flowers, and the aforementioned Satanic Majesty's Request. But Jumpin' Jack Flash came out as a non-album single in 1968 and basically definitively closed the door on that phase of the band, ushering in a new era that has come to define the band's sound and image in the popular consciousness. The band had already released what is probably their definitive song in 1965 with satisfaction, but the classic hot rocks era of the Stones, characterized by heavy country, folk, and blues influences, truly begins with Jumpin' Jack Flash, and they performed it live more than any other song in their catalog. Mm. So, completely unrelated, but have either of you seen the Whoopi Goldberg movie, Jumpin' Jack Flash? I've seen the part where she plays this song trying to figure out the lyrics. Yeah, I think that's the only real like appearance of the of the song in the movie. But uh, yeah. it's it's fun, but it's complete nonsense. It's like one of the purest star vehicles I've ever seen. And that like you know, the entire <laughs> appeal of the movie is Whoopi Goldberg's charisma, which is significant. But if you take that away, there is nothing left. Wow. Anyway, there's a cover of the song by Aretha Franklin that plays over the closing credits. <laughs> like freeway of love era yeah yeah freeway of love a song that will show up on a future polka (laughs) but yeah i think that's the only known instance of aretha franklin covering a song and making it less energetic (laughs) yeah so dan what what do you think of jumping jack flash i mean i almost have to say well the goldberg movie is great i mean i I think that rivals color purple um (laughs) (laughs) i've never actually seen all the movie saw it on tv (laughs) once yeah, I also have to say about the song because it's just 
I mean, it's one of the most famous Rolling Stones songs. It's great. I do like how this was like their big springboard out of the psychedelic era. It's like they were like rubbing dirt on their faces to like yeah. completely just, you know, say, yeah, we're, we're, we're this now. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's great. I, I, I'm kind of at a loss for words on what to actually say about it, though. <laughs> uh, Amanda, you weren't on the Stones episode. What's your take on them in general? I I wouldn't call myself a particular Stones fan, but they have so many songs that there's a good few dozen that I really, really love. And Jumpin' Jack Flash is one of them. I, I think this is so great. And oh, late 60s, early 70s, Radio Stones. It's so good. Um, and I, yeah, I'm, people might get snobby about, you know, preferring the psychedelic era, but whatever. These songs are fantastic. Um and one thing I've always really loved about them is there's never been a rock band that was better at intros than mm. the Rolling Stones. Oh, yeah. And this song has a really, really good one. I think I was born in a crossfire hurricane is an absolute champion of an opening of an opening line. The chorus maybe isn't as good as some of their others, but it's it's still really great. I know I just I've never gotten tired of Jumpin' Jack Flash. I'm happy to hear it whenever it happens to come on. It's just, it's a real winner of a song. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the ones where you're actually hearing an acoustic guitar play, played into a, like a blown out microphone. That's where you're hearing at the, the intro. Oh, so it sounds okay. like an electric guitar. Oh, neat. Yeah. Yeah. The Stones are actually a little bit too good at intros sometimes because I've, cl- I've complained about this to you guys before, <laughs> but the song Brown Sugar is just unbelievably gross and I can't stand listening to it. But the intro fools me every single time. It got me again just yesterday. I was listening to the radio like, oh, yes, yeah, the Stones. I love this. And then it got to the lyrics and I went, God damn it. And had to, <laughs> yeah. you know, hurry up and change the channel. It, it, God, why does that intro have to be so groovy? Did it you ever always have, sucks me in. Did, did you ever have one of those CD players where you could like, there's a like a sample button where it would play the first 10 seconds of every song on the CD? No, I don't think I ever saw that. You got to get one of those and just put on Hot Rocks and just... uh coast through <laughs> the first 10 seconds of every song those are some good ass intros yeah they really are like give me shelter monkey man yeah those are oh, ridiculously great intros give me shelter might be the greatest intro of all time never thought about that element of the stones but yeah you're, you're making me i mean I, I like them already but you're making me rethink them that's that's true they know how to start a song they do it's a, yeah it's it's unbelievably good okay well let's close out the pokas on 45 medley with the final track this is my generation by the who and i, I wrote a parody of this song titled trying to stop an infestation about exterminators <laughs> just a plus humor that kids go in places did you ever take these to an open mic night <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't stand in front of crowds unless it's karaoke. People try to put us down. Talking about my generation. Just because we get around. Talking about my generation. Saying they do look awful. Talking oh. about my generation. Hope I die before I get old. Talking about my generation. This is my generation. This is my generation, my generation baby. My Try to 
talked about The Who last year in his episode on their 1967 album, The Who Sell Out. So, Dan, recap that entire history for us right now, word for word. Don't leave anything out. If you miss a single word, you die. Well, that's kind of awkward because my my attack here is I was going to do every other word that I wrote and just hope it makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, no, you know who the Who are, so I'm just going to assume you're all caught up. So, the band was signed at Echo Records and... As they were recording the first album, My Generation, the title track was the third single released by The Who. I think there was another single they did under their name, The High Numbers, but we're not going to count that because you don't know the song anyway. But My Generation was released on October 29th, 1965. It reached number two on the UK charts and number 74 in the US. I distinctly remember hearing this song for the first time when my mom bought the Who's Greatest Hits CD and it like knocked me out uh, because I'd never really heard anything like that before. I'd heard other Who songs, but this is basically a punk record in 1965. Like it's mm-hmm. yeah. raw. It's, you know, gritty. It's got a bass solo. That's not punk, but it's still cool. Uh, never heard a bass <laughs> solo before, but this song, you know, it, it, it's, it's, a huge part of the who you know oeuvre or whatever but i still it's still really fresh to me i still really like it mm-hmm. um i don't think the who ever really sounded this like rough around the edges after this it's interesting how like just kind of like punk they were <laughs> for a very specific point yeah it's interesting because this song is like one of the the band's biggest hits and most well-known songs but i sometimes forget it exists because they like transitioned into like the more ambitious bombastic who so quickly yeah pete townsend mm-hmm. got very ambitious very fast so amanda what do you think of my generation also you weren't on the who episode what do you think of the who no i wasn't uh the who is one of those big bands that i feel like i should like more than i do uh, i find they got too ambitious for me. <laughs> I'm kind of with you on Pretty that too. Early and I, on. And I like the who. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I feel like, if, you know, if I'm ever in the mood to listen to the who, I'll go for who's next or meaty, beady, big and bouncy every time. You cannot um, go wrong with meaty, beady, big and bouncy. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, my generation is one of those songs that I've heard a million times, but I don't get tired of. It's, There are other songs where you hear people say, you know, from the early to mid 60s that when they came out, were so transgressive and shocking and pushing the boundaries. And you think, really? Hmm. Okay, But when you hear that about my generation, it's like, yeah, I get it. Yeah. The why don't you you all fade away? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We hope I die before I get old, you know, and just the general sound of it. It is it's so raw and rough and just. (sighs) 
really, I, I don't know. I don't really have the right adjectives for it. Just my generation is really good. And I'm not seeing anything new. Yeah, I, I don't I don't I don't really have anything to add, like specifically about the song. I'll just say, like, in, in terms of my own personal history with it, I actually heard this song performed live by They Might Be Giants once, but in kind of an interesting context. So uh, I don't I don't actually have a clip of this, but the, they used to do a bit called Spin the Dial where they would turn on the radio and try to play along with whatever songs they found as they went along. <laughs> And at my show, they were having a hard time with this until they chanced upon My Generation, which is a pretty simple song that everyone knows. So just on a dime, the entire band launched into the song and like this weird kind of (laughs) unsuccessful gimmick just exploded with energy. It was pretty amazing. That sounds really cool. Yeah, it was it was good because I I was like, oh, what are they doing until that happened? But uh, they they managed to turn it around right there. Yeah, that sounds like the kind of thing that could either be really successful or a devastating failure. Okay, well, that wraps up Pocos on 45. So thanks for joining me. This has been a fun experiment so far. Yeah, this has been fun. Yeah, so before we move on to our next comp, we're actually going to do one more medley in this set. So for our next episode, we're going to be starting the medley Hooked on Polkas from Weird Al's 1985 album Dare to be Stupid. And this is where he started focusing exclusively on contemporary hit singles, which means that it's filled with chart hits from the mid-80s, though not all of them have stood the test of time. So, to be continued, see you next episode. What do you call this record with all these songs? This is comp, yeah, yeah. This is comp, yeah, yeah. This is comp, yeah, yeah. This is. Thank you for listening to This Is Comp, a subsidiary of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. You can hear back episodes of this series and our regular album-focused episodes at discordpod.com. And you can also subscribe to Discord and Rhyme on your podcast app of choice. This closing theme is based on the song This Is Pop by XTC, originally written by Andy Partridge, and is performed by Kenneth Crayley. You can find his music at bandcamp.com. Editing and production is by me, Rich Bunnell. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep as cool as you can. Fill your eyes with double vision. My eyes. Yeah, touch the skies. Those aren't the words, uh... I can't see straight. What have you done to me? You're a jukebox hero. 